In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I consider it a privilege to be Frank Limehouse's warm-up act. I told him that on the phone recently. Some of you are familiar with gospel tracts, or perhaps you grew up in a world where gospel tracts were a part of the evangelism strategy of your local church. I grew up in a church like that. Um, I kid you not, I took our kids to the movies last Friday, my wife and I did, to celebrate the beginning of spring break, and we went to the men's restroom at the Summit Theater, and behold, there were gospel tracts waiting to be read. I've left tracts in bathrooms before. One particular gospel tract that has had a long shelf life, and probably for good reason, is one that's entitled The Four Spiritual Laws, produced by Campus Crusade. Many of you will be familiar with this tract. How can I have a personal relationship with God? That's the question that's asked. And then there's four principles that are given, and one principle in particular that stands out is the first principle, and that is God loves you, and He has a wonderful plan for your life. And that is a statement that is riddled with truth. God loves you, and He has a wonderful plan for life, though it often doesn't take into account that God's wonderful plan doesn't always measure up to our wonderful plan, and the term wonderful doesn't always in accord with our normal understanding of what that word is. But nevertheless, it's true, I guess. I recently saw a spoof on this spiritual law. There's a, a famous painting by um, a French painter named Jean-Léon Jérôme of some martyrs from the second century. It's a painting that I've known for a while. I'm, I assume many of you do as well. The scene is the Roman Colosseum, and Christians are, are huddled together in prayer on their knees with one figure standing in the middle gazing heavenward. It's a powerful scene. There are torches that are lit in the arena in this Colosseum setting, which upon closer inspection actually aren't torches. They're Christians that have been set ablaze. That's, by the way, the way traditionally we understand Polycarp from the second century to have died. So here you have people on fire in the Colosseum. You have Christians surrounded by prayer. And then there's a lion center of the painting looking curiously toward this, this praying group of Christians. I love this painting. It's a painting that's filled with piety and the best sense of that term and, and pathos. Well, someone in internet land took this famous painting and slapped a caption underneath it. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, the narrative of Jacob in the book of Genesis is similar to the spoof on Jerome's painting. Jacob, you're the son of promise. Jacob, your older brother will serve you. Jacob, you're the means by which God is going to make good on his covenant promises to your grandfather, Abraham. But the problem, of course, in the narrative is that Jacob can't escape himself. The narrative of his life is the outworking of the narrative and character of his name. He's Jacob. He's the heel catcher. He's the heel grabber. He's the manipulator. He's Mr. Wiley in the narrative. Let me have some soup, his brother asks. Okay, I'll give you some soup, but give me your birthright first. Well, what good is a birthright to me if I'm dead of hunger? Sure, you can have it. Okay, here's your soup. Oh, Jacob, so deceptive, so insidious, but God has a wonderful plan for your life, Jacob. 
You know, the Jacob stories in the book of Genesis are all moving tyrannically toward one defining encounter. In fact, as readers of Genesis, you sense the tension that builds in the narrative drama itself. And that scene that the whole narrative is building towards is the encounter that Jacob is going to have with Esau. And the last time that Jacob saw Esau, things weren't very good. I think tense would be an understatement. And now Jacob knows that he has to have an encounter with Esau. And all of Jacob's mental energies, all of his craftiness, all of his particular giftedness for scheming and strategizing for the sake of gaining the advantage of the situation, all of that has been driven toward this one encounter between Jacob and Esau. He's doing everything that he can to avoid an inevitable disaster. But God has a wonderful plan for Jacob's life. A plan that includes a very dangerous encounter that makes his meeting with Esau pale in comparison. The night before Jacob sees his brother, Jacob wrestles with God. You know, a text like Genesis 32 reminds us, in the words of C.S. Lewis, that God is good but he's not necessarily safe. See, God refuses to be domesticated. But I love this text in Genesis 32. It's captured my imagination for some time. You know the scene. It's nighttime. Jacob has sent his family to the northern side of the river Jabbok. And in the haunting words of the narrative, Jacob is left all alone. We're not completely sure why Jacob remains all alone. This enigma, along with many more enigmatic character traits of this text, witness to the fact that this story is strange soup. It's wild. Luther tells us in his commentary on Genesis that he thinks Jacob stayed behind because he needed to pray in solitude, and the kind of prayer that he was going to make is not the kind of prayer that you want people hearing. But whatever the case might be, Jacob is left all alone at night by the riverbank of the Jabbok. Let me say something just as a quick aside. For all of the proper emphasis that we place in the church on the corporate character of our faith, none of us remain as an island in this journey of faith. But there are certain aspects of the life lived before God that necessarily take place all alone. We walk through death's doors all alone. We'll stand before the judgment throne of God all alone. And here is Jacob by the river Jabbok all alone. And then, out of nowhere, a man appears. And Jacob begins to wrestle with this man to the break of dawn. And we grow so familiar with texts like these that I think our critical faculties can get turned off. But Luther was right, I believe, when he said that this story in Genesis 32 may be one of the strangest in all of the Bible. I think Luther was right. Some questions arise for me. Number one, why did these two men begin to fight, begin to wrestle? You know, coming to blows with another human being is a rather big deal. I've had this encounter one time in my life in the seventh grade. Fisticuffs, punches right in the face. You know, when we imagine ourselves in the movie of Rocky, I always 
encounter. We just see the dust flying and two men wrestling until the break of the dawn. Now, we also have the benefit of the story in its entirety before us. But Jacob has no idea who this man is. We know that the figure is God in human form. Or in the words of Hosea 12, we know that this figure is the angel of the Lord and God himself all at once. But here's the part of the text that blows our hair back. Jacob's holding his own with this divine figure. Now we might expect Esau to hold his own for a while, but not Jacob. But here's Jacob holding his own. The man can't prevail over Jacob. This text has caused interpreters trouble for a very long time. In fact, there's a certain strain strain of Jewish interpretation that understands this man as the protective angel of Esau, or maybe a demon, but not necessarily Adonai in human form. It's hard to see God underneath the wrestling arms of Jacob. But we also see in this text that the wrestling match is staged in a way, isn't it? Why? Because once Jacob prevails and the man can't get from underneath his grip, he then, this man, touches his hip and he throws it out of socket. It's a supernatural moment. It's an encounter that once that occurs, then the whole narrative begins to shift before us. Well, even Jacob, it seems, understands that at this particular moment, this is no ordinary man that I'm wrestling with. This must be God. And what does Jacob do? He goes back to his old ways. Jacob the heel grabber. Sure, you can have some soup, but give me your birthright first. Sure, I'll let you go, but bless me first. And here the narrative comes to its epicenter. Here the narrative comes to its dramatic moment. The figure looks at Jacob and he asks a penetrating question. What is your name? Does that remind you of God asking a question in the garden? Adam, where are you? You God asks these questions in the Bible. He does it to Job as well. He asks these questions to stir the conscience. And Jacob's conscience is certainly stirred at this moment. Of course God knew his name. But now Jacob has to own it. I'm Jacob. I'm the heel catcher. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the wild one who manipulates and coerces. And now God looks at Jacob and he says, you're no longer a heel grabber. You're no longer a heel catcher. But you're the one who has striven with God. You're the one who's wrestled with God and you've prevailed or you've persevered through the night. You're the one, Jacob, who refused to let go of God until he blessed you. Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the 20th century Gerhard Rod, more importantly, Hosea the prophet, all of them collectively understand that Jacob's wrestling match is symbolic of the identity of God's people. What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be a follower of God? 
It means that we wrestle with God. That we struggle to have faith in God's promises through all of the various j or Penuel moments of your life. Now for Hosea and his prophecy, Jacob stands as an embodied picture in this narrative in Genesis of what it looks like to live into the life of repentance. Let me quote Hosea for you. He says this about Jacob. He strove with the angel and he prevailed. He wept and he sought his favor. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. You see, Hosea is telling us in his prophecy that Jacob's story in Genesis 32 is our story. It's your story. Jacob's blessing is our blessing. Who are we? What is your name? I'm the one who refuses by God's grace to let go of his saving promises. I'm the one who's foul. I'm the one who flies to the fountain and says, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's who I am. Jacob's wrestling match testifies to you and to me this afternoon that the life of faith is a dynamic and ongoing encounter and struggle with the living God. Now, every day is not a J-Bop day. Every day is not a Penuel day. But the Penuel moment that you might be in right now, whether by trial, temptation, or failure, it certainly won't be your last or mine. Growing up, I used to sing the little ditty, Every Day with Jesus is Sweeter Than the Day Before. That's not a great song, frankly. Because every day isn't sweeter. Because some moments we're down by the river and we're wrestling with God. And a Christian bumper sticker just isn't enough. I think somewhere from the upbringing of my own church life, I hope that a certain level of spirituality could be attained. A kind of spirituality where every day did get better and better, releasing me from the woes and the cares of, of this world. A kind of an ethereal hope, dislodged from the life of real world and relationships. But that's really some form of, some form of Buddhism. Or maybe Stoicism. It's certainly not Christianity. It's certainly not a life of repentance. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes. And his plan, more often than not, entails a few moments by the river Jabbok. What makes a theologian, Herr Luther? Trial. Struggle. Jabbok. Penuel. It's what makes a Christian too. I believe your gospel promises, O Lord. I believe that they're true. But I'm finding it so hard to believe right now. What does one say about a life lived in the gospel? We all have our own stories. They're not transferable. My story is not transferable to you. One thing that we share in common together this afternoon is a common confession about Jesus. You see, Jesus acted on a grand redemptive stage 
demonstrating, for example, in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus is Israel incarnate. Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations, but by means of her own failure, Israel could never perform her call to walk into her election. So then Israel becomes a jacket, a, a garment in the closet, waiting for someone to come in and to wear it. And in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus walks into that wardrobe, puts on the garment of Israel, and he becomes Israel for Israel and for the nations. He goes down to Egypt. He's tempted in the wilderness. He's on the mountain given the wall and his true implications. There's Jesus being Israel for the world. There's Jesus being Jacob. Now how fitting in this season of Lent to observe Jesus in his passion and his suffering. To observe Israel incarnate, wrestling with God at the pinuel of his own atoning work. You know, the gospel allows us a privileged look into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we walk into this scene it's with, with the darkness and the mystery, we see that Jesus is wrapped with grief and sorrow as he prays, Oh, sacred head now wounded, we see him wrestling with God all night long. Do you see the true Jacob? The true Israel there at Penuel, at the river Jabbok. He's not letting go, even in his grief. Even to the point of his sweat coagulating into great drops of blood. And as Jonathan Edwards so famously said, one drop of that sweet, precious, bloody sweat is an ocean of love able to overwhelm the whole world. When you have your Jabbok moments, they're coming. When expectations and hopes hit a brick wall. The hope of the gospel for the Christian is that when the dust begins to rise and your wrestling match with God begins, you can look to your right hand and see the one who's already wrestled and prevailed for you. Man of sorrows. What a name. Take these simple words, O oh Lord, and by the power of the Spirit, set and seal them on our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen.